Loss helps us define our lives. By allowing our grief to matter, we discover our own strengths and embrace our authentic selves. Welcome to Good Grief with your host, Cheryl Jones. Get ready to be inspired, to create a deeper life, to make your time on Earth much more meaningful. Now, here is Cheryl Jones. Hello, I'm your host, Cheryl Jones, and I want to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. Today, I welcome Louise Aronson. Louise is a geriatrician, writer, educator, and professor of medicine at the University of California, San Francisco, and the author of the New York Times bestseller, Elderhood, Redefining Aging, Transforming Medicine, and Reimagining Life. A graduate of Harvard Medical School and the Warren Wilson Program for Writers, Dr. Aronson has received the Gold Professorship in Humanism and Medicine, the California Home Care Physician of the Year Award, and the American Geriatric Society Clinician Teacher of the Year Award. Her writing appears in publications, including the New York Times, Washington Post, Discover Magazine, and the New England Journal of Medicine, and that has earned her four Pushcart nominations, the Sonora Review Prize, and a McDowell Fellowship. Her work on aging has been featured on CBS This Morning, NPR's Fresh Air, Politico, Lit Hub, Kaiser Health News, and Tech Nation. Welcome, Louise. Thanks. It's great to be here. It's great to have you. And the book uh, felt just so uh, reaffirming of some things that I've been noticing about getting old. Uh, so thank you for that. <laughs> yes, that seems to be the, the consensus. It turns out we're, we're all pretty much the same on that, and yet society hasn't quite caught up with us. No, it's true. And um, I use that word on purpose, getting old, because I find that uh, people are very disturbed when I use it, but I feel as if I want to claim it. I mean, many of my friends don't have the privilege of being here <laughs> at this point. Um, but but this sense that there's a difference between being old and coming into elderhood was something that stood out in your book. Uh, can you talk a little about that? Yeah, well, actually, my first thought for the book was to call it oldhood, um, which people really hated, uh, <laughs> but it was for the exact reason that you just used the word, to, to try and reclaim it, because the word in and of itself does not mean anything negative. It just means having existed for more years. It's simply a statement of fact. Uh, but I was swayed to elderhood not so much because it sounds better to so many ears, um, although that clearly is true, but by a very astute reader, I had used the word oldhood in, an, in the New York Times, and a reader in New Jersey whom I don't know, sent a note and said, but oldhood doesn't make any sense. If you have childhood, you then have the noun, the person, the child. Adulthood, adult. Oldhood, what's an old? You have to use elderhood because then you have an elder. Uh, and she was, of course, just right. And I think the reason to have an elderhood is to recognize that our last 10, 20, 30, 40, and on some occasions, 50 years of life are no less varied and meaningful than the earlier phases of childhood and adulthood. 
The other thing that came to me about it is I've been exposed to some traditions, including actually my wife's uh, family, uh, where elderhood has a distinct and honored meaning. And uh, it appears to me like we've lost that. Uh, You know, elders are listened to, they're... I just had nieces over and they wanted to hear our perspective on things as older people. And that just doesn't happen to me usually. Unless I'm right. just well, not, not mentioning my age. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. I think people think they can just Google everything. Uh, but when it comes to, you know, if it's a fact, you can Google it. If it's sort of how do you judge how to do something, it turns out years of experience mean that your judgment will probably, uh, is more likely to yield a solution that works. So a lot of uh, psychologists and sort of implementation people are looking at the unique per- unique contributions that we make with years of experience. Um, I do think that, and I, I actually start the book with a an anecdote about a colleague of mine who does an exercise having people respond to the words old and elder. And even though we see less about elders in our culture and in this historical moment than we have previously, most people still have largely negative associations with the word old and much more positive associations with the word elder. So I I do think it holds. Given a choice, most people will choose to be an elder rather than an old person. (laughs) Maybe you could share that part of the book because that did... uh stick with me that that uh, experiment that your colleague conducts okay let me there it is okay on a foggy morning in 2015 I arrived at the University of California Berkeley for an appointment with Professor Guy Miko I had heard about an exercise he did every fall with his new medical students and I wanted to see it for myself Standing at the front of a cramped classroom, Miko asked a group of 16 students to put down the first words that came to mind when he used the word old in reference to a person. Don't filter, he said, just write. The young men and women around the single large table were first-year students in a joint medicine public health graduate program that describes its matriculates as, quote, passionately dedicated to improving the world's health, end quote. You know, basically just what you expect from students at Berkeley. But they ranged in age from early to middle 20s, and their resumes attested to extraordinarily idealistic good intentions. The students began scribbling on the scratch paper Miko provided so he could collect responses and assess trends over time. When one minute elapsed, he told them to stop. He then repeated his instructions, but this time with the word elder. Nico had been doing this exercise with his students for years. The faces in the room changed, but their responses to the two prompts did not. So he wasn't surprised when the most common associations with the word old included wrinkled, bent over, slow-moving, bald, and white hair. Many also wrote weak, fragile, feeble, frail, or sick. A sizable minority put down a variation of grandparent, and several listed their mothers, though generally the parents of medical students range in age from late 40s to early 60s, years most people consider part of middle age. Some used words like wisdom, but more chose sad, pejorative, stubborn, and lonely. One wrote, quote, smelling of mothballs and stale smoke. For elder, the list looked very different. 
by far the most common word was wise. Other responses were respect, leader, experience, power, money, and knowledge. And I'll stop there. It's a really interesting <laughs> it contrast. Is the other thing isn't to note that I that I say later is that Nico has done this with people of all ages, and they all say the same thing, even people who are themselves old. You know, uh, it 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 coincides with an observation that I've had the last couple of years. I turned sixty six in July, so I turned sixty five last year, and. Uh, a more sizable percentage of people uh, in, in thinking they were complimenting me um, wished me happy 40th birthday, uh, happy 50th birthday. <laughs> they subtracted years from my age when they wished right. me a happy birthday. Um, to which my reply was, you don't get to steal any years. I earned every one of them, but <laughs> people were well, shocked at that response. You. Yeah, no, it, it actually infuriates me. And I recognize that most people mean well, but what they are essentially saying is that you at your current age are not worth anything or you at your current age um, couldn't look beautiful so that if you look beautiful, you must actually look younger. Right? They're saying it's impossible to be old and to be beautiful or to be old and to be relevant, um, that the only way you can be a person worth seeing or respecting is to be younger, which is not what they intend, but that's absolutely what the message is. Uh, it, it basically invalidates you. And actually, the, the writer Ursula Le Guin had some great quotes on this in one of her last books uh, when she written when she was in her 80s. And she said, if, if you tell me I am not my age or, you know, that, that you don't see age, then you don't see me. And she also challenged anyone to, you know, say that they were 20 years younger than they were, and then if they were in fact old, to try and like get quickly and gracefully out of the bathtub. So she's like, you know, you, you can pretend, but it, it's in fact real, and it matters in ways both good and bad, as all ages do. Yes, and um, I also have a, a hip problem right now. And people want me to fix it really quickly. Uh, mm-hmm. The fact that I have a little bit of a limp when I get up and down is really disturbing the people around me. Um, oh, that's interesting. It's not that I love it, <laughs> obviously. Right, of but, course not. <laughs> but it doesn't mean everything about me either. Uh, mm-hmm. And I that stood out to me in your book, too, that we kind of, at some point, people become their bodies and not their whole selves. Um, and I, you're right. talking well, we about how medicine treats us that way, but I think the people around us do as well. Right, and, and it also sort of expresses indirectly a fear of needing help and a fear of having anything less than a perfect body, which really is counterproductive because most of us through most of our lives will have imperfect bodies and all of us will need help. We need a lot of help at the beginning of life and a lot of help at the end of life, but frankly, we need help intermittently throughout. Um, So it's sort of invalidating the lives of the young, of the very old, of anybody with any kind of disability, and you start adding up the lists of people who are invalidated 
by the sense of you're, you're less than fully human if you need a little help in some area or if your hip isn't quite what it once was, um, and you're not left with too many humans. So it's really very counterproductive. <laughs> it also means that point. when we get there and all of us will experience that, we're not going to get the sort of sympathy and hope, you know, and help that we would hope for. So I think we need to start treating each other the way we want to be treated when that happens to us because it's not really an if. It's when, if it's not already true. It's interesting, too, because I I observed at close range, you know, uh, how I got into this work was my wife dying. She had a debilitating cancer that slowly eroded oh. her bones. She was very disabled. But I'm noticing that uh, the way that she was um, related to around that is different than the way uh, old or aging people are related to around it. She was still uh, recognized as young. She had her own set of problems because of that, being being young, disabled, right. and sick. But um, right. I'm noticing that aging is not the same thing. I can't just transpose that observed experience and understand my experience now. Mm-hmm. They're, they're real Such different. an interesting observation. Yeah, that age still matters. I mean, it's almost like an intersectionality of age and disability and illness. Um, and then I also think there's just a great deal of individuality. Um, but, you know, age does make a difference in in everything. It's not everything I mean, and you know, not nothing, sort of universal huh? Universal design and universal access. And sometimes the things that are actually just a talk I gave a couple weeks ago, someone said, well, you know, I just went to this part of actually the medical center where I work. And she said, I, I couldn't push my walker up that ramp. You know, the ramp was too steep. So it was made for maybe younger people in wheelchairs or with walkers, not necessarily somebody in her late 80s with one. Yes, and uh, I I do find that in terms of um, uh, disability in general. You know, right now I'm parking in dis in disabled spots because of this hip thing, and some of them are really right. far. They're obviously designed for someone in an electric chair, or uh, they're not necessarily closer to where I have to get. Sometimes they are, but not always. <laughs> Right, which makes That's no sense. That's an interesting phenomenon. It is. It's sort of like welcome and not, <laughs> right? <laughs> Almost there is how I think of it. <laughs> Almost right. getting it. Um, but, of course, a big uh, focus of your book is on uh, the medical community and how aging and and the different stages of being old and elder uh, are handled in in medicine, which I guess does reflect our, you know, fix it culture and our hating death culture and all of that. But uh, can we begin to talk a little bit about that part about the um, the kind of lumping together that medicine does of people at these different stages? We'll, we'll just get a, a start because it's almost time for a break, but I'd like to get a start and then continue after the break. Okay. 
Um, well, I think, you know, we don't really pay much attention to old age in medical training. And, you know, I know more, most about doctors, but um, it's very much the same if you're talking social workers, nurses, physical therapists, anyone else. And I think there are two main reasons for it. One is all those fields are populated by human beings. Human beings are products of culture. Um, so we behave in medicine just as our dominant culture does, which is largely, you know, ageist or age blind in ways that, that, you know, age blind makes it sound good, but it's actually usually not helpful. Um, The other thing is there just haven't been so many older people. And when there's a major demographic shift, there's always a lag in when um, institutions and people respond to it and begin to develop new approaches that really make sense given the new demographics. Um, In medical school, it's a four-year-long process. And we spend about two and a half to four months learning about children. And we, in my era, which is 25 years ago, spent about two and a half to four hours learning about older adults, hours. Um, and now, if you're lucky, you might get a week or few. Um, yet, if you look in hospitals, about 6% of people in hospitals are children and about 40% are older adults. So the amount of time devoted to older bodies and lives is grossly underrepresented or you know, not proportional to the amount of time um, that, that people, doctors across specialties are going to spend with older adults. Uh, and that's even more true in the outpatient setting, which is where most patients are seen. And across specialties, people will be treating older people without understanding their unique physiology, their unique priorities, their psychology, where they are developmentally, and everything else. The other thing that, that I've I've observed before and noticed, again, is your is in your book, um, and there are a lot of other books on this particular aspect, is kind of knowing when to stop. Uh, right. Which is my constant prayer, to be perfectly honest, that, that I or whoever is in charge of me knows when to stop. Um, <laughs> because it's really a hard, a hard call, isn't it? And medicine isn't geared towards stopping necessarily. Right. Well, but it's sort of built on a fallacy that we can always be fixed, right? That medicine has gotten so good that we can always fix you. And yet the facts are quite simple. You know, human mortality is holding steady at 100%, which means that for all of us, at some point, things won't be fixable. And particularly as people are significantly old, so certainly say in the oldest old category above age 85, but, you know, to some extent, mortality starts going up in the 50s and goes up significantly each decade thereafter. So we know everyone will die, and there's nothing about um, denying that fact or, you know, doing things to people who are dying that simply prolong their suffering that is very helpful, but the, the incredible thing in medicine is that even though, for example, we all listen, learn to listen to hearts, although most of us aren't cardiologists, we don't really all learn how to help someone die as comfortably and as much in keeping with their values as possible. And most people don't learn, you know, how to assess, like, are we now moving towards over-treatment? Uh, are the, the harms far outweighing the benefits for this person with this 
treatment or condition. That's especially true in old age because most of the drugs and procedures we use on older people were actually studied in much younger people. So even under optimal circumstances, we don't know what they do in older bodies until basically, you know, it's applied to people. And then when it goes badly, most people actually blame old age instead of the faulty science on which the assumptions were. <laughs> right. I, I want to talk about more, and more, more about that, and it's time for our break. So let's hold that thought for a few okay. minutes when we take a break. And listeners, you'll find links to my website and social media at the Good Grief page at Voice America to get to my social media, get on my email list. You can also find my novel there, An Ocean Between Them. There's a link to uh, more information about it. And to find Louise Aronson, go to Louise Aronson. That's L-O-U-I-S-E-A-R-O-N-S-O-N.com. Be back soon. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. What sets apart voiceamerica.tv from the other video content providers on the Internet? Choice and flexibility means that you can host your video content live or on demand on the main voiceamerica.tv channels through your own branded media player or your own private TV channel. We support multiple media formats, so all of your video content can be in one place. We offer a number of advertising and video packages. For more information, visit voiceamerica.tv. If you think you've seen online TV like this before, let us surprise you. Perspectives with Dr. Badisha Patel is a program that explores emotional management for a healthier lifestyle. On each program, we discuss ideas that support emotional well-being, such as mental illness, relationships, parenting, and family connections, and much more. If you are facing challenges in your life, you can grow and learn by exploring new techniques in dealing with stress, anxiety, and relationships. Perspectives with Dr. Vadisha Patel airs live Wednesdays at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Health and Wellness. Are you living a healthy and fit lifestyle? It's not just related to your physical well-being. It also means a healthier mind, confidence, improved health, stamina, and fitness. Talking with Tremaine brings it all to you. Host Tremaine Ellis, along with her husband and co-host David Ellis, will offer support, advice, guidance, and motivation to keep you in your best shape, both physically and mentally. Talking with Tremaine can be heard live every Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time and 3 Pacific on the Voice America Health and wellness channel be sure to like the voice america health and wellness channel on facebook you'll find great health tips from the experts find out more about your favorite shows and talk back to our team search voice america health or click the like button under the player today your life your health your network you're listening to voice america health and wellness Listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1 866 472 5792. That's 1 866 472 5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. I'm your host, Cheryl Jones, and I've been talking with Louise Aronson about her book, Elderhood. And Louise, before the break, we were kind of um, beginning to talk about this aspect of, of 
late old age or old old age, I guess, um, where right. it's really hard to determine when to stop things. Uh, and this this is a particular focus of mine more and more. Um, it, my mother, for instance, very definitively decided for herself when to stop things. I, I usually say she died of traffic because uh, she was in treatment. It was working. The side effects weren't too bad, but the drive across over to San Francisco became too much. And right. um, she said that I'm ready now to stop this. Um, but mm-hmm. if, if someone is not so uh, prepared to say that, you know, her doctor was actually not happy about it. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. Then, to me, you're really in a quandary because uh, how do people then come to know that it's that it might be time to consider not doing everything that can be done? And whose call is it? Right, and it, it's it's sort of an interesting setup, even our language of doing everything that can be done. I think one thing to recognize is that just because you can do something doesn't mean it's helpful or good for you. Um, and it's never everything that can be done. Like sometimes in medicine, people will use this god-awful terminology called withdrawal of care. So under no circumstances should a clinician be withdrawing care. You may stop treating a particular condition when the treatment is not at all helpful or when the harms of treatment exceed its benefits, but that's not the same as withdrawing care. Part of that comes down to people's training when they only know how to treat diseases and organs, which is most of what our medical system does, instead of treating whole human beings in the context of, you know, their values and lives, um, which is what some specialties focus on, but but actually most don't. Um, I think there are a variety of issues there. There there is the issue of the oldest old. We've done an amazing job with both public health and medical advances of extending longevity by decades, Um, but we still all die. And if and sometimes we keep people alive, but we don't necessarily think of the longer-term consequences. Like, you're really happy when they cure your cancer or, you know, fix your heart blockage. That's terrific. Um, but that also means you don't die of that. So what we're seeing more and more is people among the oldest old, which is considered 85 up. Um, and my oldest patient, just to give some context, was 111, and there are some that are older than that. Um So some people end up where they can't really move, they can't see very well, the parts have worn out, they can't hear very well, they can't walk very well, they're not continent, and there's actually no hope currently of any of those things getting better. And they will say, why am I still here and why can't I die? And I think when we're so busy investing so much money in all these sort of life-extending or disease-curing treatments, we need to be devoting equal time and attention to their longer-term effects. I also think as a society, we need to be discussing how to help these people. People are beginning to starve themselves to death for lack of other options. Um, And even these... uh, 
medical aid and dying laws tend to really be focused on adults, not elders, so they have requirements that someone like the person I just described who's gravely disabled and ancient really can't avail themselves of it. So we can't create a novel situation for our species and offer people no options for managing it in ways um, that, that give them some control over their lives and quality of life. I think that's really important. I don't think that's an easy discussion, and I don't think everybody will agree on the solutions, but we're certainly not going to have options if we never have the conversation. I, I appreciate, too, you talking about everything that can be done because, um, of course, being being more on the uh, you know mental health end of things, there's always something that can be done. <laughs> You know, uh, there's always yeah. a conversation to be had or care to be given or that sort of thing. Um, but I, I notice I've now, part of aging and part of the particular life I've led, I've now been intimately involved in quite a few deaths. And mm-hmm. they they all went pretty well, but it was because of... Um, it was because of us as advocates. Uh, it was because it, it was clear that we needed to ask those questions. I can't really remember a time when a medical person uh, initiated the conversation about stopping things. Mm-hmm. And I hope that's, that's changing. What do you think? Oh, definitely. I mean, the field of palliative care is very much about that. And I think um, many clinicians aren't comfortable with it. You know, they're humans like anyone else and or they're not trained in it, but they will sometimes when they get that feeling of moral distress. um, So, (laughs) you know, you often hear that people don't want to go into geriatrics and that's not because they have any exposure to geriatrics. It's because they have, you know, most training is done in hospitals they have exposure to what causes them moral distress, which is doing things to older people that are of minimal help and cause a great deal of pain. Um, So they are morally distressed, but they now can refer to palliative care and palliative care um, will come in and have those conversations. Um, Where there are geriatricians, we also do that of necessity. I mean, people think the difference between a geriatrician and an internist is about the age of patients, but it's really not. It's the approach um, uh, where internists are trained more to focus on diseases. We are trained more to focus on lives and function and values and priorities. And we really do all that first because I can't know what the right management for a patient's disease is if I don't know what they want to be able to do in their lives. You know, what's their environment? What's the context of where they live? What's their social context? Um, And, you know, people who just do internal medicine will say, well, I don't have time to ask those questions. And I guess our argument in geriatrics is you don't have time not to because it frames absolutely everything else you do. And it's the only way to individualize care to a particular human being, particularly as they age and things begin to change. And whether you can do what you want to do is actually more important than how you do it and whether the part is functioning as it did 40 years earlier. There's also the the aspect of, uh, and again, I've, I've, been reviewing these experiences of mine, the aspect of emergency. Uh, if you're in a ICU 
which I was with my mother-in-law, um, mm. having had a dire event, um, I've now been through those kinds of things twice, and I don't feel that the clinicians that I ran into, they were l- relieved when I brought it up, when I said, can we have a palliative care consult? Um, is there a chance of meaningful recovery? They were like, I'm so glad you're (laughs) bringing that up, but I'm unusual, right? I'm, I'm um, oversaturated. It means they felt (laughs) it was needed, but then they didn't do it. Right. So they didn't do it. Right. Right. So then I was thinking about all the other patients that might be in that circumstance who didn't have the experience that I have or, uh, you know, it's, um, and my mother-in-law was a year ago, so <laughs> it hasn't mm-hmm. changed entirely. Yeah. Uh, well, and so it's, it's a big it's concern things, of mine, you know, for, for my kids, for, you know, for people that might right. be making decisions for me, if they're left to kind of manage that, um, do you think that's a common thing or is my experience unusual? No, I think it's really common. I think it is becoming less common, but it's very common. And, you know, the people you were there for were lucky in two regards because it's not only that you knew there were options. Um, it was also that you had the agency and society to ask for them. There are parts of all kinds of groups that simply wouldn't would they would see asking that question as questioning the doctor and that's something they're unwilling to do or, you know, feel they don't have the power in society to do. So I think we have to acknowledge, you know, how who we are plays into what we get. And, you know, if we're saying that that healthcare is a right and that the person in, you know, bed three is equal to the person in bed four, um, then we should be offering it when we think it's appropriate. Um, The other thing is I think it should be more universal. You know, we have sort of palliative care is outsourced, but if everybody suffers and everybody dies, then shouldn't those palliative care skills be part of every single profession, not just part of geriatrics and palliative care. Yeah, it reminds me of when I do trainings for therapists um, and, you know, I'll hear from therapists, I don't work with grief and mm-hmm. and I'm thinking, or I don't work with illness, I don't work with end of life, whatever it is. And I'm thinking, so then when your clients reach that point, they lose you. That's that's yeah, I mean, how if that you don't work with grief. Are you working with human beings? Uh, yeah, exactly. I don't, no I don't understand that. I mean, I think it's a limited definition of grief, but right. But you know, still, it's that sense of not not acknowledging that in the course of human lives, those things will happen. It's not an if, and that right. We we're going to be we're going to be needing to work with that in some form. So we may as well get good at it. Yes. Yes, definitely. Um, I, I, I was very touched away. by, by Eva in your book ah. because uh, you didn't meet her in your office. Maybe that's why no. she touched me so much. Um, can you share <laughs> her me. story a bit? <laughs> yeah. Do you want me to read part of it or just? Sure. That'd be it. great. Okay, I'll read, enough time read to read part a bit. of the beginning, and then I can talk. It's rather 
Um, it was December, just before Christmas. I locked my car and ran walked the block and a half toward my destination, a dilapidated clinic down the hill from a recently renovated hospital. Every time my right foot hit the pavement, I was reminded why I needed the podiatry appointment for which I was about to be late. Nearing the entryway, I admired its worn grandeur. Tapered semicircular walls extended welcoming arms from either side of the sliding glass doors, and a half moon of sidewalks stretched to the quiet side street. That's when I noticed a woman standing at the curb. She had propped her cane on her walker and was squinting toward the nearby boulevard. It was about 4.30. I'd asked for the last appointment of the day for my pre-op so I could leave work as late as possible. The woman was well into her 80s with a confident demeanor and clothes and hair that revealed an attention to appearance and suggested a middle-class existence. She had a cell phone in one hand and seemed to be waiting for a ride. When I came back out after 5 o'clock, night had fallen. But for her tan winter coat and bright scarf, I might have missed her standing at the shadows, leaning against the curved wall. She still held the mobile phone, but now her shoulders were slumped and her hair disheveled by an increasingly cold evening breeze. I hesitated. On one side of San Francisco, my mother needed computer help. On the other, our dog needed a walk, dinner had to be cooked, and several hours of patient notes and work emails required my attention. I asked if she was okay. When she answered yes, I waited. She looked at the sidewalk, lips pursed, and shook her head. No, she said. My ride didn't come, and I have this thing on my phone that calls a cab, but it sends them to my apartment. I don't know how to get them here, and I can't reach my friend. She showed me her phone. The battery was dead. I called for a taxi with my phone and helped her forward from the entryway wall to the curb. Tired and cold, she suddenly seemed frail. We chatted while waiting. Eva owned a small business downtown, or she had. She was in the process of retiring, having been unable to do much work in recent months because of illnesses. She'd been hospitalized twice in the past year. Nothing catastrophic, she said, yet somehow the second stay had dismantled her life. Since then, things had never quite gotten back to normal. The doctor in me noted that Eva had some trouble hearing, even more difficulty seeing, arthritic fingers and a gait that favored her right side, but her brain was sharp and she had a terrific sense of humor. Finally, the cab arrived. The driver watched as I helped Eva off the curb, an awkward, slow process because of her cold, stiffened joints, the walker, and our bags. As I turned to open the back seat door, he sped away without his passenger. I stared, dumbfounded, and pulled out my phone to call the company and complain. Eva was more sanguine. It happens all the time, she said. Just then, a taxi from another company turned the corner. He slowed down from my outstretched hand, but saw Eva and screeched off into the night. Damn, she muttered. So that's the opening scene, and what happens after that is I, of course, take her home, and it turns out she lives up 47 steps, you know, like 10 or 12 oh, steps, a terrace. 10 or, so it takes us I, the better part I want of to talk hour, more about Eva, but it's time for another break. <laughs> they came around Oh, no, quickly. okay. Let's, <laughs> let's talk more about her after the break. And listeners, you can go find Sounds me at good. weatherandgrief.com, and you can find Louise at louisearonson.com. Beck's in. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Healthcare has been a major part of news stories today with one thing that has been consistent 
inconsistency. Both healthcare providers and patients have to work around and get used to a constantly changing set of rules and issues. Nurses have historically been left out of this decision-making. Listen to Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse, exploring the world of nursing with host Leanne Meyer. Health professionals, we invite you to share your ideas and experiences while listening to experts in various areas of nursing. Listen Mondays at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Health & Wellness. The Voice America Live Events Channel is here now to showcase your corporate, individual, or organization's live event. Visit voiceamerica.com forward slash live events to see all of our past live events and find out more. Whether it's a multi-day conference, special speaker, or single-day event, we've got everything to make your event a success. We can do a few hours or a few days. For more information about taking your event to the next level, call Jeff Spinard at 480 294 6417 or email info at voiceamerica.com. Again, that's Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or send us an email to info at voiceamerica.com. Voice America is where you are and where you want to be. Join us around the globe as we broadcast live from some of the most interesting events available. Don't forget to view all our live events, including on-demand access to past events that you may have missed by visiting voiceamerica.com forward slash live events. Over 20 million people in America struggle with substance use. This impacts both the people who are using and loved ones who are trying to help. Still, there is hope. Tune in to the Beyond Addiction Show with host Josh King. You'll hear from experts and get the real information you need to understand and assist in change. Change can be hard. It doesn't have to be confusing. Tune in every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time and 1 p.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Health & Wellness. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all of our show archives on demand. All from your iOS, Amazon Kindle, or Android device. Download it from the Apple App Store, Amazon, or Google Play, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. I'm here with Louise Aronson talking about her book, Elderhood. And Louise, before the break... uh, we we got your first introduction to to Eva, um, and the reason I I think she stood out for me is just that um, she exemplified to me uh, kind of the trajectory for people who are aging largely by themselves. You know, first it's just harder to do things or slower to do things, then. Um, you know, she had all those stairs, then she can't get out. And um, so it's, it's, uh, 
It's a scary prospect, actually, to an extent. It absolutely is, but one of the reasons I like the story, though, is it shows how with the right help, you know, your finances go further, you can do more, um, and so on. And it also sort of shows how her all her various physicians, and she had so many, recognized what were the biggest problems for her, but had no idea how to help. And actually helping her wasn't that hard um, once we switched her to geriatrics. Um, so it's, it's a matter of the approach, and the others could have done more to help her if they had the knowledge and skills they needed to treat the older patients they're already treating. Um, but also, if we as a society acknowledge this will happen to many of us, even people who are currently currently partnered, may lose their partners. Um, so we, we can have more structures to facilitate that very common experience just by acknowledging that it exists. You know, it, it, I actually came out at the end thinking um, when, when several things start happening to me, for me, which is kind of how it goes, um, I might mm-hmm. switch to geriatrics Yes, because there's expertise there, but also just because uh, I've noticed with my own clients, there's nobody kind of looking at the overall picture. Everybody's looking at their one little part, which means a ton of appointments um, Mm -hmm. that you have to get to. (laughs) You know, it's just very practically difficult. And then what if the two people that are treating different things don't actually agree. And there's just a lot of complications with that. Right. People end up on 15, 20, 25 medicines because each specialist is treating his or her organ or disease of preference. And nobody's stepping back and saying, if you're on this many medicines, there's toxicity, there's expense, there's inconvenience. What are you actually doing to make your life enjoyable? You know, we don't want to reduce old age to a process of going to the doctors and taking pills. Now, for some people, that's pleasurable, but that just goes to show how we've impoverished the, the later phases of elderhood. Um, so I think I think the, the current system speaks to our values, and we we are not just like random associations of diseases and organs. We are first and foremost whole human beings, um, and but the medical system really prioritizes hospitals over being an outpatient, um, diseases over health, organs over the whole person. So we we need to start thinking, you know, yes about health reform so everybody has access to health, but also about the way we need to put our dollars where our priorities are because that's not where they are right now. Absolutely. I don't want to let you get away without talking about the impact of all of this on you as a person and doctors as people because I think Mm -hmm. uh, what you talk about in the book is certainly not limited to you where there's such an incredibly high rate of burnout and you kind of, from my view, put that... um, in large part on some of these sort of harmful uses of medicine, would you say? And also just, uh, of course, that, uh, that system makes you work very, very hard. But uh, I wonder if you, could, if, if you could talk about your own relationship to medicine and how the two intersect. 
for a little bit. Yeah, it's great. So, you know, most statistics show that upwards of 50% of doctors are suffering burnout. And some people are like, oh, you know, give me a small violin. But it turns out it matters to patients in a variety of ways. One is that um, doctors who are burned out deliver less good care. Um, and there's more turnout, uh, a turnover. Um, so, so the harms, and it's just more costly, and we don't need to be sinking more costs into things. But so medical training is hard, um, and that's not necessarily a problem, although exhaustion, you know, we, we would sometimes joke on call that the same ways you get inculcated into a, a cult are the ways you get trained in medicine where you don't get to sleep or <laughs> eat or eat and you no know, control over your life, and there's lots of suffering and many orders of what you have to do. Um, at the same time, it's a huge privilege and a pleasure. And what happened to me with the burnout um, was, I think, the two major factors for me, and this many people have used the term moral distress rather than burnout or, or as related to that. One was that with the introduction of the electronic record, I was spending two to four hours um, on each patient note clicking boxes that had nothing to do with me communicating um, the important aspects of either the patient's story and experience or my analysis of it and treatment plan. Um, and that was way more time than I was spending with the patient, um, which is heart-sickening if you actually like caring for patients. Um, and it was leaving me little time to care for myself or to do the, all the many things we have to do outside an appointment to take good care of people. And then that made me feel guilty and like a bad doctor and so onward down the spot. Um, the other thing was looking at our health system, which um, says, oh, you know, we're, we don't have enough money for anything. But, but it's so obvious that we put the money in the wrong places. You know, U.S. healthcare is ranked 37th in outcomes and, you know, in, in, in some, you know, in many categories far lower than that. And all the countries that do better than we do much, put much higher emphasis on um, primary care and social determinants of care. But in our health system, like, we won't do anything to keep you healthy. Um, but once you've had the accident or illness, we'll transport you by ambulance and deal with you in the ER and hospitalize you and send you to a nursing home, none of which you would want, right? So we're really, you know, when people say we don't have enough money, that latter scenario costs tens and often hundreds of thousands of dollars, whereas the health prevention that we could get for that same person is in the hundreds to thousands. So it's an order of magnitude or two difference or investing in the most expensive stuff, um, which lets people get sick and then comes in to rescue them instead of in the things that would prioritize health and come at much uh, cheaper, you know, come much more cheaply. And so that too led to moral distress. Like why, you know, this is so obvious and, and nobody seems to see it or care, um, which is really upsetting. Uh, but what I found for me was it it gave me time to realize I know what my values are. I know what's important. And frankly, to write this book and go out in the world and try and rally all of us to improve health care because we all need it, you know, sometimes, if not all the time. Um, and that's been really fun. And then I just set up my practice where I have extra time because I'm not willing to shortchange the patients or myself anymore. Um, you know, I take... I take that, I take a hit for that, right? I don't get paid for that extra time. Um, and so I take a, a lower salary, but it's the only way I can do it in a way that I find conscionable. And it's yeah. a shame that I need to do it that way, but, you know, I'm just not going to harm my patients and I'm not going to make myself ill again. 
Right. You know, by happenstance, I saw an interview with Maria Shriver the, today in which she mm-hmm. talked about, um, I guess she's written an article. I haven't seen the article yet, but she talked about how she took an entire month off and went to Utah and sat on a mountain. And uh-huh. um, the first thing that happened when she did that is that she sobbed for a solid hour. And then... Wow. Um, what happened by the end of the month was she remembered who she was. Right. Um, and I, it was, it was quite um, uh, meaningful to me that that space away from what she was doing and doing and doing and trying to be great at uh, actually right. more fully into uh, her calling, which she clearly has one, but she had lost right. touch with it. And I think that's, yep of what we're talking about that you can get so caught up in every demand um, that that we kind of gets disconnected from why we're doing it. Yes. Yeah. And the, the, the systems and structures should be supporting the why and the who instead of undermining them. Like you shouldn't be battling the very structures in which you work to get your job done, um, which is what happens all too often. And of course, that I I have to think relates a little bit to living in a very individually oriented culture where if there's a problem, it's kind of the individuals to fix. I see that in my profession, too, when actually people are being impacted by a lot that is not individual. Uh, And that stood out in your book that the structure and uh, what you were exposed to was a big factor, but you were supposed to solve it by somehow being great at resiliency and self-care. Um, right. And we asked the same thing of aging people and of caregivers. You know, the vast majority, like 40-some million people are are family caregivers. Um, and, and each family struggles alone because we don't really have systems and structures to support them. And they don't know who to turn to or or what to do. And, and that makes no sense because if it's that many millions of people um, and that's at one snapshot in time, it's really most of us eventually. And a universal experience should have um, society-wide options to support people and families and individuals. Oh, I'm into that, having been a caregiver for 10 years. <laughs> I could, wow. could do yeah. another 10 oh, shows of that for sure. Louise, I really yeah. have enjoyed our conversation. There's there's so many millions of things more that um, would be so wonderful to talk about, but we've run out of time. Thanks well, it was for being a pleasure. Here. I enjoyed it too. Good, I'm glad. And again, you can... Uh, Find Louise Aronson's book and her work at louisearonson.com. It's L-O-U-I-S-E-A-R-O-N-S-O-N.com. Next week, I'll have Dr. Sarah Neustadter to talk about her book, Love You Like the Sky, Surviving the Suicide of a Beloved. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation. Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief. 
Please come back next Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Cheryl Jones, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a meaningful week. Abre mi corazón.